Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of Movement Radio. I'm your host, Chip Hazard. Live life hard, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Talon Williams, and today we have a very different episode of uh, the top 10. Um, and it's uh, going to be a different one because it is involving professional wrestling. Now, you might think to yourself, wait a second, you guys are pro wrestlers. Why would you not talk about that sometimes on the podcast? But this is a pod, this particular episode is not necessarily about the good side of professional wrestling, it is very much about what could happen if stuff goes wrong. So, yeah, this, this is basically. The reason why we named the episode of this episode podcast is when when wrestling goes wrong is because these are the 10 professional wrestling events that went horribly wrong, horribly awry. Um, And as a lot of people know, for those of you who have been living under a rock for however long you've been living, pro wrestling is predetermined. Um, I I hate the word fake, but, you know, predetermined. Um, So as a result, there could be some times where sometimes wrestlers would go against business for whatever reason. Um, and whether it be because of a stiff shot, whether it be because of, you know, letting wrestlers know the pecking order or whatever it was. Um, sometimes real life heat can boil over into a match. It's happened several times. Um, so sometimes things can be a bit disastrous when that happens. Uh, we want to let you, everybody know that when we do this list, um, this list depicts some very extreme and graphic violence uh, against both male and female wrestlers. So if yes. you do feel uncomfortable with listening to this episode, you know, just be advised that we are going to be talking about instances that were very disturbing in some cases. Um, there's your trigger warning right there. Cause I know some people are like, uh, don't feel comfortable with this conversation. Well, it's going to happen. So we're going to get through this the best way we can. But if you want to take the evens, I'll take the odds and we'll go straight into the list. That works. Also, um, <clears throat> when I put the show notes up, uh, I'm going to try to find um, most of, I know at least one of the incidences on this list you cannot find a video of at all. Right. Um, and and you'll understand why that is once we get into the list. Uh, but I will try to find links to each of these incidences and uh, put them in the show notes so you can go and watch this if you so choose to uh, and, and you can watch it along with us talking about it and um, everything so uh, yeah. All right, so I, I think that would, would help a little bit right. um, <clears throat> sorry about that so the first up is the stardom incident Right. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Stardom is a strictly female Japanese promotion. Um, and so there's there's no men that work there. It's it's just women. Um, so this was known as the Ghastly Match in Japan. Act, um, act Yakuzawaka. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Yakuzawawa. There you go. And I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing these terribly wrong. Um, so, and I'm going to catch a lot of heat from that, from some of the boys, <laughs> right. but it's okay. Uh, not like they see me anyway. Uh, <laughs> right. So it was, uh, uh, Yasukawa versus, uh, Yoshiko. Right. And, uh, so it was supposed to be the main event title match for stardom. Um, instead it ended up being 
national news. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, it, and it also ended up costing one of the wrestlers their career. So, early in the matchup, the smaller uh, Yasukawa uh, seemingly caught Yoshiko with uh, a stiff punch, uh, whether by accident or she really meant to punch this bitch in the face. Right. We don't know. Uh, so then Yoshikawa responded with a series of very serious punches to uh, uh, Yasuka. <clears throat> and uh, so it devolved into a horror show where uh, Yasukawa got her face smashed up and when the fight was finally broken up she had suffered a broken cheekbone uh, I'm sorry a broken cheekbone fractured orbital bone and a smashed nose which required immediate surgery mm. her injuries ultimately forced her into retirement and it became mandatory for medical personnel to be present at every match following this incident um, so for the role in the fight uh, Yoshiko was indefinitely banned from stardom but has had virtually no issues getting work anywhere else she just cannot wrestle for stardom that's the one thing that surprises me um, and, and granted we don't know the whole entire story as to why this happened um, right. I mean we've been in the ring with guys before I'm not saying that every person that we've ever been in the ring with who has a stiff shot is taking liberties. Some guys, yeah, when we're when you're young in the business, yeah, some guys will take a little liberty. Let me check this. Let me check this guy's temperature. See if I need to wash my back or whatever. But right. chances are, I mean, it's professional wrestling. A stiff shot is going to happen one way or another. Now, unless there was some kind of backstage incident that took place before, or if they had heat going into it. If there was an accidental punch, then well, that's pretty extreme to go to that point where you're breaking, you know, orbital bones and smashing noses that require surgery. But if it was right. like legit, like, I want to fuck you up right now, and then the other person fucks you up, you know, in response, then you kind of get what you deserve. So, again, I may have to look deeper into this particular situation to, to, to really give a good excuse me, opinion about it, because, you know, again, if it was an accident, then that's a fucked up thing to do to somebody over an accident. But if it was on purpose, oh, yeah. then, yeah, you got what you deserve, you know? So until I know the facts about the situation, it's kind of hard for me to judge that. But still, I mean, at the end of the day, you take a stiff shot, it's like, ah, oh, shit, I took a stiff shot, you know? Gr granted, if it was just one stiff shot, like, you, we all have the three-strike rule in wrestling. One shot, ah, uh, hey, lighten up. You know, second shot, all right, last chance. Third shot, take him down. We, we work or shooting. What are we doing? You know, and then we go from there. Right. Um, but that's 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 just old school. That's just, you know, what we've been taught, you know. That's what we taught when we, when we were taught the stunt puller and shit, you know. <laughs> right. You know, uh, I mean I um now I've seen video of this incident. See, I and it's terrible, dude. Like is it, it as bad as Sexy Star versus Rosemary? Is it a, is it is, is that is it that bad, or is it a little bit worse? Um, than I, I would say it's worse than that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, for me, it was worse than that. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at a picture right now, the picture that's uh, been provided, and girl looks like she's <laughs> pretty messed up. So. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, obviously, she's a smaller girl than the girl that's you know in the red, um, Yoshiko. So, I mean, obviously with smaller workers, you know, we want to, you know, smaller workers are always a little bit, I think, I think smaller workers are a little bit stiffer in the ring anyway, because it's like the bigger guy, right. you're like, oh, I can take the hits from a smaller guy, no problem. So it, it, it looks more realistic when you're throwing it as hard as you can, but there's a, there's an art to throwing punches to where it doesn't, where you can, it, you can make the skin wiggle, but it doesn't kill the person. You see what I'm saying? Um, oh yeah. Which is why I throw elbows and not punches. Cause I know because sometimes I can pull them, sometimes I can't. Um, you know, so watch out, watch out for the elbow. <laughs> but anyway, all right. So we're gonna jump ahead to the next one, and the next one involves Mrs. Foley's baby boy, Mick Foley, uh, when he got hit in the head eleven times <clears throat> with a steel chair. Now, back in 2010, the WWE completely banned the use of direct chair shots to the head and in effect to lessen the chances of performers receiving concussions, CTE, possible brain damage, things like that, because that was all around the time that um, it was right after, because 2007, it was right after the Benoit tragedy and then CTE was getting very prominent because I believe at that time, I think uh, uh, Mike Webster had committed suicide and Andre Waters and all these other different players from different sports were committing suicide you know, and a lot of them have CTE. So that's something that now here in the year 2020, how testing for CTE has become more prevalent. It's actually helped prolong a lot of guys' careers. However, I'm pretty sure Mick Foley would have loved for that um, uh, protocol to be elemented 11 years later or 11 years earlier. Um, back in, back in the year, uh, back in the year 1999, uh, it says that he hit, he was hit 11 times in the head unprotected, um, in a singles match when he, when he wrestled the rock. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is the match where he had his hands tied behind his back. Uh, now Foley had originally agreed to take five headshots while the other two wrestlers went from one arena to one, from one end of the ring to the other. But it took 11 blows in total as the pair struggled to get get agreed upon agreed upon the spot. Uh, Mick Foley suffered horrible gashes to the top of his head that bled pretty profusely, all while his wife and his young children sat in the audience and watched the whole thing go down. After the show, Mick Foley only got stitches, but it was the beginning of the end for him as he was starting to noticeably get memory or he, he noticeably noticeable issues with his memory loss and different things like that. Uh, I believe he also suffered. Um, he also suffered, I believe, post-concussion syndrome on, on the kind of that, um, which later on, I mean, he, he wrestled after that, obviously, and he had a, he had a role with the company afterwards. Um, do you remember yeah, that's right around the time he started doing um the commissioner role he was and writing, stuff like yeah, that he was writing, and he was writing his i think i think that's when foley is good was actually uh was it foley is good or was it the book that came out before that no foley foley is good was the first one. Oh, i thought that was the second what was this what was his second book then uh no you're right foley is good 
was the second one. Have a nice day was, Have the, nice first day was the first one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember watching that match? Uh, yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, God, this is terrible. <laughs> like Foley's a crazy son of a bitch for taking this. Cause obviously they had to agree upon something about it. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You would think that that was agreed upon. Uh, and the fact that they, I mean, they have remained really good friends ever since. And, uh, I mean, they formed the tag team, the Rock and Sock Connection there. Right. And everything like, you know, so I don't think there was animosity. It was just, you know, hey, um, I, okay, I know I agreed to this, but uh, damn, uh, let's... Uh, <laughs> Let's ease it up a little bit, you know? Right. And plus... I, I got the splitting head over here. Right. And it was also um, featured in the movie Beyond the Mat as well. It uh, was? Yeah. Yes. You see, and for those of you who don't know, Beyond the Mat was a documentary about the WWE back in uh, the... Almost right at the... Excuse me. I say the apex, but I don't think the Attitude Era's apex didn't really hit until the year 2000. But that's a different story for a different time. But I think the only reason why the apex happened was because at the, in the year 2000, that was the year that WCW was starting to decline. Um, right. But but yeah, man. And, I, and again, I, like, I think Foley, I, I think Foley still suffers with it in some aspects. You, I mean, you wouldn't know by, by seeing him, you know, because he's, he's always been the, I think Jim Cornette said it one time in an interview that Mick Foley's the nicest guy in the wrestling business, but he's too nice to be in the wrestling business. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, and plus, I mean, he, and Mick Foley, I think, is doing good for himself. He's still doing the stand-up comedy. He's, you know, he's got the long beard now. He's be, being Santa Claus in a mall or something, you know, so. Have you ever seen him live? Uh, uh, not from, wrestling, but his his uh, stand-up. Aside from what the WWE Network posted, which was more of a, more of a town hall, not necessarily his stand-up stuff, um, right. He had some stand-up stuff sprinkled in, obviously. But aside from that, I have not seen him live performing any of his stand I know he was in Chattanooga with Dutch. Um, yeah, so I went to the one in Chattanooga. Yeah. Um, and it was whoo, great. Pretty funny, huh? Yeah, I, I would... Uh, I mean, I don't think a lot of people that didn't know anything about wrestling uh, would get some of the jokes. Like, a lot of it was very very much wrestling related and inside jokes right uh and so i seen him right it was right after the wrestlemania where uh brock lesnar beat taker yeah so and, uh, be, yeah so that would be 2014 uh yeah because yes. 30 yeah yeah 2014 yeah yeah so um uh, one guy in the crowd, uh, he was doing, uh, Mick Foley was doing uh, word associations, and he, he said Brock Lesnar. One guy in the crowd said, uh, asshole. And uh, Mick Foley was like, yeah, I bet you won't say that to his face. And the dude was <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I will, and uh, everything. And that led into the story of uh, why Brock Lesnar was the best and only person that could have ever ended the streak. Right. Like it couldn't have been anybody else. And uh, so he goes and he tells this whole long drawn out story uh, about 
who Brock Lesnar is. And uh, he circles back to... um, So, let me step back just a little bit. In in his stand-up, he allots himself one, one F-bomb throughout the whole stand-up, right? So, he tells you this at the beginning. So, you're kind of waiting on it. And he plays off of this to where... It, you know, it sounds like he's yeah <laughs> like he's gonna say it and then he, he switches gears and goes somewhere else right so uh he goes and uh he's telling the story about Brock Lesnar and uh he circles back and he's like so I say all that to tell you the reason Brock Lesnar was the perfect candidate to end the streak and the only one that could have done it is because he just don't give a fuck <laughs> <laughs> you know so he, right. he got it in and but then you, you sit back and you think about it and I mean it's true like you know he, he doesn't care really what the fans think whether you know like so clearly he's for the most part a bad guy he plays the heel right you know so when it comes down to it he, he doesn't really care that you don't like him yeah. when he's the bad guy. Yeah, the, you know? dude, the dude lives in Saskatchewan. I think I, I think I was listening to an episode of uh, Talkers Jericho. I think he had Edge and Paul Heyman on, and Jericho and Edge both were like, because they're both Canadian, is like, we know people who want to leave Saskatchewan. We don't know anybody that wants to go to Saskatchewan. So right. it's like, but yeah, he, 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 but he, but he, but he, he lives there on a farm up there. Yeah, which he's a... He's a good old, you know, farm boy from Webster, South Dakota. So I mean, it's it, it's it's just what he's he grew up knowing, you know, um, right. So, but I mean, but, man, but and anyway, I no, no, I no, kind of no. got us off subject. I no, digress. No, 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 cool. You brought up the whole Brock Lesnar thing, and it kind of translates, kind of kind of smoothly into the next uh, one that we're going to talk about, um, because it, it, I don't know if you believe this the same way that I believe this. Who do you think is one of Brock Lesnar's best opponents that he's ever faced? Oh, I would say uh, it would be a toss-up between Eddie Guerrero and Kurt Angle, in my opinion. Exactly. And you could throw in The Undertaker for later yeah. on and choose to tell the story or whatever. But for me, my God, the matches that him and Kurt Angle had, especially the one that he had at WrestleMania 19, Oh, um, where he almost broke his neck on the guitar. <laughs> exactly. But even yeah. then, like everything before that was still killer, though. Um, but nevertheless, Kurt Angle is what we're, who we're going to be talking about next. Yes. Um, the Olympic gold medalist Kurt Angle nearly gets his arm broke. Let me break this down. Now, uh, back in the early 2000s, WWE attempted to, well, it really happened in the 90s first. Uh, WWE tried to attempt to capture that reality TV audience. Um, so they launched, you know, they did they did Tough Enough. They did a couple of years of Tough Enough uh, on, on MTV. And that's where we had Maven and Nidia, Linda Miles, Jackie, uh, Gata, uh, John Hennigan, who later became John Morrison, and Matt right. Capitelli, God rest his soul. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but, but, but they brought it back in, in, I can't remember exactly if it was 2003 or 2004. I can't exactly remember the year. Um, but they did Tough Enough, but instead of it being like, reality based and inside of a house and everybody living together and all that sort of shit they did it on television as a, on, on SmackDown 
it was basically right. giving eight hopefuls a chance to not only win a contract with WWE, but also win a million dollars. So one of the challenges that they did, I believe it was either the second or third week. I want to say it's the second week because the first week was they had to take a body slam from the big show. Uh, but anyway, uh, one of the challenges saw the contestants facing Kurt Angle in a shoot-style wrestling match. Unfortunately for Kurt Angle, one of those competitors was a trained MMA fighter by the name of Daniel Pewter. Now, I know Daniel Pewter's name is probably probably very lost in the minds of a lot of hardcore, a lot of wrestling fans of today. I mean, if you're like a really extreme, like diehard WWE fan, you could probably remember him very vaguely. Uh, last time I heard about Daniel Pewter was I think the 2005 Royal Rumble where Eddie and Chris Benoit started off the match and then Daniel Pewter came in at number three and they just beat the shit out of him and then Hardcore Holly came in at number four and then all three of them beat the shit out of each other and he was like fuck this and tried to get away from him the whole time but anyway Pewter right. Pewter got in the ring with Kurt Angle and Angle took him down and he put him in a Kimura now for the people who don't understand what a Kimura is. It's basically where you grab somebody's wrist with one hand. Let's just say you're putting a Kimura on the left arm. You grab the left wrist with your right hand. You take your uh, you take your arm and you go over the left shoulder underneath the elbow in between the rib cage and the elbow and then you grab your own wrist and then you crank it to the left at about a 45 degree angle and what that does is that it tears the muscles and tears the cartilage in the elbow. Or at least it stretches it to the point where if you do give it with enough pounds per square inch, you could technically rip car rip cartilage, tear muscles, break bone. Like it's a legit, like real shoot move. And it's pretty painful if you've ever been put in a legit Kimura before. Um, now, seeing the way that this thing transpired, it happened on live television. Yeah, I think the referee kind of realized, oh shit, this is serious. So the referee immediately counted to three really fast. That way it didn't make hurting look bad. The W officials, they made it to where the fall was in his favor. And then after that happened, they got up and they, you can kind of see them looking at each other like, oh, mother, you know, like almost like Kurt Angle's looking at him like, you motherfucker, you're going to embarrass me, all this sort of shit. Now, both wrestlers did completely different, you know, paths after that. But, you know, regardless of how WWE tried to dress it up and everything, I think Kurt Angle's arm and his pride got hurt just a little bit because I mean granted it was a shoot style wrestling match so it technically wasn't a mixed martial arts bout you know but maybe in Daniel Pewter's mind he was thinking to himself you know what I ain't gonna be I ain't gonna be made to look like a bitch here on live television fuck this I'm just gonna put him in a Kimura lock right that being said if this is you know if you're basically putting because it's, it's one thing if it's during the confines of a wrestling match that happens because at least a wrestling match is somewhat, you know, constructed. If this was live and this was unscripted or this was unprepared in any way, shape or form, I'm pretty sure Daniel Pewter got into hot water with a lot, especially with, you know, Al Snow and a lot of the other trainers that were involved at the time. I'm pretty sure that that was an incident where they're like, Dang, what the fuck are you do? Sometimes you got to learn to eat shit and like the taste of it. You know, if, right. you're booked, if you're booked to go under and you're the way you go under is you got to get hit tossed into a pile of shit. You're getting hit tossing that pile of shit because that's what the promoter asked you to do. You know, eventually the favor will be returned to you. But right now you got to make the baby face look good. Do this shit. 
you know. Um, do you remember watching that episode of SmackDown? I do, uh, and and I always thought, like, uh, watching it, I always thought, man, that was that was weird, you know. Uh, and then you know, you you go back and you hear the inside story and everything, and you're like, oh shit, okay. So that's what happened. Right. And isn't it ironic that Daniel Pewter won the whole thing and the runner-up of that Million Dollar Tough Enough was The Miz, and The Miz was the one that ended up winning the WWE Championship. Well, uh... Like, how ironic is that? You know what I mean? Not to take anything away from The Miz. The Miz, you know, people don't give him enough credit for putting in the work on the indies to get to and then the indies when the Miz was around wasn't as prevalent as it is now you know what right. I mean because he was on the indies four or five years wrestling out in California and hell I think he was was he was he doing independent shows when he was on the real world uh as far as I know yes right so and a lot and that's where a whole lot of people say well the only reason why he got on there was because of the MTV show okay MTV I'm pretty sure helped <laughs> the fact that he had it you know, but I mean, look at him now. You know, he's probably one of the he's probably one of the biggest stars in the company right now in terms of, you know, the money that he generates and the fact that he, you know, he works hard, never takes a day off, and he's still a devoted husband and father. So he's he's getting the way better into this deal than Daniel Peter did. So Oh God, yeah. You know, so Oh God, yeah. Yeah. And then in a recent TMZ uh interview that I seen um, Daniel Peter, they asked him about the million dollars and they said that after taxes and everything and after everything blew up, he only brought home logistically like maybe 24, 20, like maybe two. Oh, I'm sorry, I got, I'm getting that number wrong. I apologize. About 240,000 was about the amount of that he got. And the contract that he signed because he only, I think he signed a one year deal, which was six, a one year six figure deal. But the million dollars wasn't a separate thing. The million dollars was basically what was attached to the deal. So his one-year deal right. was basically the twenty to two hundred something thousand or whatever it was, which at the time was getting paid more than, you know, the the minimum amount you can pay a a roster member or whatever. But yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't even know what Daniel Peter's doing these days. I don't know if he's still working. I don't know if he's went on to do something else if he's coaching MMA or something. I don't know what he's doing. But um, but yeah, that was a that was a thing. Are you looking him up right now? I am. Um let's see, what is Daniel Peter doing? Probably not a damn thing. Probably. Uh, uh, I be, I, be, I don't want to put me in a Kimura lock. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what is trying to look like Joe Diesel Riggs in the peripheral. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, apparently he's not doing. I think he's doing some MMA coaching right now. Um, so the last time he wrestled was in 2011. Uh, so he did the deal with WWE from 04 to 05. Then he went to Ring of Honor until 2008. Hmm. Uh, and then from there, he went to New Japan until 2011. Okay. So he got yeah. around a little bit afterwards. Yeah, just a little bit. Okay. Um, I, I guess, you know, that that, that exposure on WWE TV, uh, you know, it'll it'll lot you some leniency here or there. 
or whatnot. But yeah, it says that uh, Pewter currently provides MMA instruction using the private coaching service Coach Up. Oh, okay. That's American Top Team, isn't it? Uh, I don't know what the hell it okay. is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm asking. I'm asking a wrestling. I'm asking a, a wrestling fan an MMA question. What the fuck's wrong with me? Sorry. <laughs> I, I just. I mean, I don't like uh, current MMA. Uh, um, I mean, I grew up on, you know, the real Tito, shit. Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, Tim Sylvia. Uh, no. Even, even before that, Royce Gracie, Tank Abbott, you know, when there wasn't weight classes, <laughs> right. nothing like that. Right. You know, it was legit, you know, who was the baddest. Right. So... Uh, Alrighty. Yeah, that's that's when I was an MA fan. Then they started implementing all these extra rules and stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I get why they they did implement the rules and everything, but you know, it just what at that point it wasn't my cup of tea. So, you know, I just went on about with other stuff that I I enjoyed. Right. Uh, all right. So, what's next uh, on the on the docket? Well, so next up is the first incident that I can ever remember witnessing somebody get fucked up in a match. Right. Uh, and so I'm talking about the Big Van Vader, Stan Hansen incident, where Vader thought he was a badass, and little old Stan Hansen beat the shit out of him and knocked his <laughs> eyeball out of socket. Whew. Uh, yeah, I remember that. All right. Now, that's not to take anything away from, from Vader. Right. Because uh, Vader reaches up uh, and, and grabs his eye and shoves this damn thing back into the socket mm. and finishes the match. Man. Right? So, this... Um, this was from 1990. Okay, so okay. this is this is we're in 2020 right now, and we're going all the way back to 1990 yeah. yep. for an incident that happened in Japan. All right. Okay. Uh, Big Van Vader was a wrestler of massive proportions who had a tendency to strike his opponents with real punches. Uh, so it just so happened that his opponent, Stan Hansen was also a giant man who had the habit of doing the exact same thing. <laughs> All right. This, so this, already this is great. Go ahead. Yeah. So so you get two massive massive guys who like to hit people really hard. Right? <laughs> right? In the same match against each other. It's it's just you're just waiting on it to boil down. Right. All right. So, in the match, they start out just swinging haymakers, right? Right. Um, Vader seemingly gets the upper hand until suddenly, uh, reeling back in shock, he pulls off his mask and he reveals to the horrified world that his eye, his eyeball, has fallen out of the socket. Okay, and you just have the the 
the cord, the optic nerve, mm, yeah, holding it, right? Mm. So while you would assume that the match would end right there, Vader has other thoughts. So uh, he decides he's just going to reach up, grab his eyeball, shove it back into socket, and then continue the match for an astonishing more minutes of pure, unadulterated, slobber, knocking, stiff shots. Jesus Christ. Uh, now, he, he did end up having to require uh, surgery on his eye. Right. Uh, because I'm pretty but, sure that they had to reconnect the optic nerve, which the optic nerve is about. People think that the optic nerve is like this little bitty like vein or something like that. It's actually about as big around as your pinky finger. Um, right. And it's pretty thick too. It's pretty thick because you have because it has all those nerve endings and stuff. And it and it's also like the base of it is where the lens is and things like that. So yeah, that's that's pretty sick. I mean, I mean, I've seen MMA fights that have been just insane two guys just throwing swinging for the fan i remember uh diego sanchez and clay guida had a uh, match or a fight and these guys literally from like the, the first like 30 seconds it was it was just them swinging connecting swinging one of them's already blood i was like jesus christ this this is insane and then you think to professional wrestling you think well nothing nothing that crazy could ever happen in pro wrestling Oh yeah, yeah, the fuck it can because go watch Vader and which both of those guys were known to be just stiff as hell. Like I think you know Stan Hansen's lariat. How many people have copied that lariat? How many people have tried to re reinvent the wheel, if you will, when it comes to just a stiff running clothesline? I think the closest person to perfect. Any type of Larry would, um, I mean, there's a couple of people that come to mind. I think JBL has a damn good clothesline. Um, oh, he, he, uh, his is directly, re, uh, he tried to fashion his directly after Stan Hansen. Yeah. And it, I mean, I don't know if his is, I think his looks a little bit crisper. I guess only from the standpoint that, you know, he can get that pop better because Hanson's where, where it's like if you see okay I'll put it to you this way if I see JBL throw a clothesline from hell I'm like oh damn that was crazy if I see Stan Hanson throw right. I'm like oh fuck he's dead like that's that's the difference right like I know JBL it made it look like he could my god Stan Hanson just went through that oh my god that was just Stan Hanson probably had the stiffest looking like like I mean I think my did Masawa, did Masawa throw one as well that was pretty stiff as well? Um, I don't think so. I think he was more known for the Tiger Driver and the big moves like that, like almost you know danking people on their head and shit. Um, right. But yeah, but but over in Japan, my God, people in Japan, you know, especially people who came to, came out to see guys like you know Stan Hansen and Abby and. And and Brody, like those people, were just bloodthirsty because they knew if you they knew if you went to see Hanson or Brody or Abdullah, like you're 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 in for a treat, you know, because it's going to be hard hitting. It's going to be it's going to be insane, you know. Which which a lot of 
you know, Japanese wrestlers today still do that strong style stuff, and it looks amazing. Like I like we're gonna talk about one here in just a little bit. Um, but uh, we're gonna go on. We're gonna go on to the very next one. Um, this one I've actually never heard of. So forgive okay. me if I don't know too much about this incident. Um, the title simply says, "Wrestler pulls off his mask, nearly gets his neck snapped." So let me let me go ahead and break this down. Now, for some wrestlers, there is there is nothing more sacred than their mask. We all have our favorite masked wrestler, whether it be uh, Rey Mysterio, Psychosis, Juventud, Ultimo Dragon. Uh, Tiger Mask, uh, El Santo, like, you know, a, a lot of the greats, right? Speaking of El Santo, that's who exactly we're going to talk about. One such wrestler by the name of El Santo was so serious about his mask that he had to travel from country to country in secret and had and have special arrangements with different countries just to keep his co-workers from seeing his face when going through customs. Now, this is an old tradition that goes back many, many years in Lucha Libre. Um, only once in his career did he ever did he ever remove his mask on television. And it had happened just days before his death from a heart attack. With that in mind, let's talk about Dirt Bike Kid. Facing the great Sasuke in a loser takes off their mask match, the Dirt Bike Kid decided to remove his main mask before the match even started, completely completely ruining any stakes the show might have built up. He then refused to react to any of, Shins, uh, of, of Sasuke's fake attacks until finally his already frustrated opponent began assaulting him for real. By the time Dirt Bike Kid realized what was happening, Sasuke had him locked in a neck wrench choke that was so violent that you can hear Dirt Bike Kid screaming in pain as he is slowly twisting the man's neck. Sasuke was quickly declared the winner as Dirt Bike Kid faded into retirement. Now, I don't know anything about this. I'm just, matter of fact, this is the very first time that I've ever heard of this. I honestly thought that we were fixing to talk about El Santo. I thought that El Santo was going to be a part of this as I was reading it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, I, I, swerve. <laughs> we'll, we'll swerve left. Yeah, right swerve there. left at this point. Like, damn, I thought we were going to talk about one of the greatest luchadors of all time. And then, bam, you hit me with Dirt Bike Kid. Like, what the fuck? Um, right. I guess there's a reason why I don't know who the hell Dirt Bike Kid is. Um, but, yeah, something very – yeah, it, it's one of those things where it's like – God, I mean, when you first of all, when you no sell someone, that's a big no no. Um, right. Then you take off a mask because you already have a mask underneath, kind of ruining the mystique of like, hey, it's a mask. And then you're being an asshole the whole time you're working. And then you wonder why Chasuke knocked, you know, snatched you up by your neck and almost broke your neck because you were being a disrespectful little shit. You know what I'm saying? Right. Again, like, I mean, there have been plenty of times which, you know, I don't know how young or how inexperienced this dirt bike kid was, but somebody should have taught this kid a little bit of ethics or a little bit like professional ethics or some sportsmanship or some professionalism or something along the lines where you understand, like, if whoever, I, that's kind of on a part of the trainer, though, in a sense. For not uh, stealing. Yeah. Well, hang on, hang on. I'm not saying it's all the trainer. I'm saying 
it, it, it's kind of his because he didn't instill that. But also, if the dirt bike kid was a was a, was a piece of shit, then that's kind of on him more. You see what I'm saying? So you can kind of right. go you can you can go either way with it. I think you know. But still, I mean, to to no sell everything and then to just go straight to like removing the mat, you know, like that. Ugh, you know, have you ever heard of this story before? Um, I had not. Um, I, however, uh, while we were talking about it, I pulled up a video clip of it. And holy shit! Oh, uh, you seen it? I I just watched it. It's uh, it, it's only about a six minute clip. Uh, but so, uh, the the kid comes out, the dirt bike kid. Uh, so Sasuke comes out first, right? Okay. Uh, and then uh, second out comes the uh, dirt bike kid. Uh, Sasuke gets the traditional flowers or whatnot and uh dirt bike kid has on a full uh face mask i found it i'm watching yeah i'm watching it Uh, as you're describing it and and then he pulls the mask off and has on a um uh i guess the best way to describe it would be a glacier s mask on underneath that uh so then the camera pans to uh, Sasuke, and you can see in his eyes that uh, he's not very happy. Yeah, with them. Uh, and so the the dirt bike kid mask, the second mask, uh, it it leaves very little to the uh, imagination as to who this guy is yeah. oh yeah i'm looking uh, at i'm looking at sasuke's face right now and you can clearly tell in his eyes like you dumb motherfucker why did you do that you couldn't have kept that on during the ma-. yeah very 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 and this how long ago this was back in uh it doesn't give a year but i mean it had to be i mean the, the way the video was shot it looks like it was shot in the 90s they were i mean they threw the streamer which i thought was more of a new millennium type thing uh, yeah, it was definitely in the nineties. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it was but, little bit it, it looks like it's, it looks like the guy you know put on a COVID mask and he's ready to fight because he's scared of getting it. You know, and I know that's not something that, right. I know that's not something that you know people normally joke about because COVID is still a very serious thing. I'm just telling you what it looks like. Um, it no, looks no, like, no, no. It looks like he's wearing a COVID mask. Um, yeah, and you, you just see him. You know, he, it, it looks like he's impressive, but at the same time. Okay, that was a no sell. Okay, you're not. He wants to. Oh, okay, I see what this is. He's this. He's this young guy who thinks he's a badass. And yeah, okay, yeah. And you go to the top rope and like, why could he just? Yeah, at that point, I would have been like, yeah, motherfucker, what are you doing? Okay, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit to where I get to where he's right. All right, I'm at four, I'm at four minutes fourteen seconds to. Ooh, yeah, he's got him. Yeah, and you can see the look on his face where then the referee's trying to pull him off. And yeah, that's that, that, that's that's sick, dude. That's whew. yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, kind of up to up to about the uh, the three and a half, four minute mark. Let me see. Uh, and okay. Yeah, because I'm at uh, three minutes, 40 seconds. Okay. Uh, Yeah, it's about three minutes, 40 seconds where Sasuke is finally like, okay, enough is enough. 
uh, and he starts like with his traditional uh, offense, uh, kicks and and everything. Which, if you've ever seen a Sasuke match, it's very you know he's very martial arts esque, right? Uh, and so Dirt Bike Kid decides he's going to no sell a bunch of kicks when then Sasuke gets pissed and. I mean, he's fucking him up with these kicks, yeah, bro. He is. Oh, now we're at the neck vice. Yeah. Uh, brothers tapping out. This is before the tap out even existed. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like it's like you it's almost like you you feel you don't feel bad for the kid because the motherfucker didn't do what he was asked, first of all. And then it's like you you know, sell everything that he's doing, and then it's like, okay, you get really. I mean, the choke didn't really last that long. I mean, if anything, he and again, I'm not in that particular hold, so I don't know how the man's neck felt. But right, damn, that was pretty, it was pretty intense, man. That was crazy. Um, so yeah. Um, that being said, let's move on to the very next one. Yeah, <laughs> so the, the very. The, the very next one is so I I vaguely remember this and I so I didn't make this list uh, clearly uh, so I don't think that this should be this high up on the list uh, if it even makes the list in my opinion at all right. but since it's on here we're going to talk about it we're going to talk about the time that an audience member whipped a nine volt battery at Shawn Michaels. Mm-hmm. That was yeah, I remember this. This was the uh, this was the uh, it was it was like a pre it was like a, it was an outdoor deal with um, it was for, it was promoting WrestleMania. I think is what it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, it's uh, right before um, what WrestleMania. Uh, it, it was at the DX Public Workout in 98. Yeah. It was right before the WrestleMania where Sean uh, retired the first time. Yeah. Because when he, of yeah that's when he, that's when he uh, dropped the belt to Steve Austin, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I, re- I remember this vaguely, but I don't remember it being like this big ordeal. But anyway, so everybody who is a wrestling fan of some sort knows who in the hell Shawn Michaels is. Right. right? He's one of the most iconic uh, wrestlers there is. Um, I I would say, you know, if if we're coming down to it, uh, most people would probably put him at 1A, 1B as the greatest wrestler ever uh, alongside with Ric Flair. Yeah, that would be the general consistency, yes. Um, So... Um, this was uh, again this was at the DX Public Workout in 98 uh, Shawn Michaels was running the heel up into Wrestlemania 14 where he was scheduled to lose the title belt to Steve Austin a decision that he did not like so much Shawn right. didn't uh, the showrunners were so worried that Shawn would refuse to work the match that the veteran wrestler The Undertaker was said to have called to convince him to do his job. 
Yep. Uh, the tape fist deal where he sat at position. I think Jim Cornette talked about it in one of the kayfabe commentary videos where Undertaker taped his fist up, and if things didn't go the way that they were supposed to go, he was going to deal with Sean. But apparently, they it, it went obviously based off what happened. You know, yeah. it went the way it was supposed to go. Um, so while Sean did eventually agree to lose the belt, it almost all came crashing down during the filming of this promotional video where a fan in the audience chucked a 9-volt battery into the ring and it hit Shawn Michaels square in his forehead. (laughs) Shawn, already upset about having to lose, simply got out of the ring, walked out of the arena, leaving everyone to wonder if that was the end. (laughs) Uh, When the time came for Shawn to finally do the job, he delivered, but a battery, a battery, (laughs) almost ruined a multi- million dollar show yep okay wrestling yeah uh, now for for most people they don't know that leading up to 98 sean was very he was very heavy into drugs uh he hadn't found god yet he uh he very much was a I'm going to do everything my way and you're not going to stop me from it ever kind of right. deal. Uh, and if he didn't like it, he would just take his ball and go home. Right. But I think a lot uh, of that, but I think a lot of that is Vince McMahon's fault from the fact that he let Sean get away with so much in 95, 96, 97, or really more 95, 96, because it wasn't until the whole Montreal screw job where things started really spiraling out of control with Sean's attitude, you know, at that point, you know, I feel like it was worse after the Montreal, worse after Montreal than beforehand. I mean, Sean was still a, a still a, someone who was, from what I've heard, from what I've read, difficult to work with then, because um, you know the story of the whole thing with him and Brett, you know, uh, at, at WrestleMania 12 when he when they won the, when they did the Iron Man match, Shawn Michaels won. And as Sean, you, you remember the clip of Sean basically holding, you know, holding his face with the belt. Brett's still in the ring, and you, you, you can't hear it on the network, but you audibly, from, apparently, you could have. He said, "Like, get the fuck out of my ring. It's my moment." Blah 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 blah. You know. So, but as far as like, right? Yeah, yeah I, I remember that. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it, it kind of starts there and everything, but it, it's just like. He had a very bad attitude leading up to uh, him coming back in, uh, shit, what was that? Uh, 2003? Yeah, because he was gone for five years. So Yeah, yeah he came back and he did the deal with uh, Triple H at SummerSlam that year. Uh, it was his one, it was his one time only deal which Sean in 98 99 did the commissioner role for a while as well so he was still right. somewhat of a presence on television um but, but but even then still had his issues and different things like that and then I think he went on and I think he he married one of the nitro girls um yes he did and then he uh I think she's the one that invited him to a bible study one time and then he uh you know he found God um, which is which became pretty much very much a part of his persona and his character coming back to the company in uh, 2003. Um, 
which they didn't make it so overtly over the top. I mean, it wasn't overtly over the top until Vince McMahon and Shane got involved and said it was it was the McMahons versus Shawn Michaels and God, which right. that was way beyond the scope of, you know, what should have and probably would have, you know, should have happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, but for a nine volt battery to be the, could have been the one thing that could have, completely screwed over everything because a lot of people credit 1998 to be the record year for business in WWE um, and ironic because anytime like full disclosure to everybody who's listening while I'm while, while I am on my side of the computer uh, recording the podcast I always have uh, something playing on in the background and I actually have WWE uh, network on I'm listening to the 1998 uh, over the edge pay-per-view where Austin and McFoley had their mat had their main event match. Um but could you imagine 1998 if if Shawn Michaels just refused to to go, refused to do the job, refused to drop the belt. The whole Austin era wouldn't have begun. The the notion of you know, what could have happened, could it have been an instance of tragedy if Shawn Michaels continued to go down the road that he went down. Could it have been worse for him? Would it would have would he ended up having a drug overdose? Would he ended up, you know, getting involved in something that she like the the, the spiral effect that could have happened had this damn D cell had, had this damn uh, nine volt battery could have had. You know, you know what I mean? Very, right. very, very, very different. Um but yeah, but I mean, and again, Shawn Michaels, like we said, you know, he 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 rededicated his life. Um, you know, ended up winning another world championship in his second run in those god awful shit brown trunks and those that horrible that horrible yes. horrible Karen haircut. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I gotta quit. All right, so the next one that I'm gonna talk about, uh, Oscar purposefully has the most uncomfortable match ever. Um, now there's a video that accompanies it, but it's not it's not in this country. It won't, it won't let me watch it. Um, so, I guess because I've never heard of this, let me just go ahead and do this. Um, now, it was a mixed tag match featuring Asuka and Noromichi. Na- Naomichi? Okay. Uh, going no, up, there you go. Yes. Going up against uh, Miko and Sasuke, and everything was seemingly going as planned until a female wrestler, Asuka. Is this the same Asuka from WWE? Yes, but this was when this is in Japan when she was known as Kana. Right. Okay. A A N A. Yeah. So Kana got into the ring with her longtime idol, the male wrestler Maruro Suzuki. Suzuki opened up with a horrible sounding headbutt and then immediately set the work punches and kicking Asuka in ways that did not look fake in any way, shape, or form. The other wrestlers in the match, including Sasuke's partner, tried multiple times to get him to stop, but he just kept going until finally pinning Asuka to end the match. While it all seems pointlessly brutal and unprovoked, Asuka was actually the one who set up the beating with Sasuke in the first place. Hmm, a little, a little uh, Justice Smollett here. Um, uh, Zuke was well known for his, 
well, it says Suzuki was well known for his working stiff with people, and Oscar loved that style so much so that she incorporated his fighting style into her own when she first started out, continuing yeah. it into the WWE. Oscar, okay, I read that part. Oscar personally asked him not to hold back in their match and give it his all, no matter how bad it might have been. To Oscar's delight and to some people's horror, he didn't hold back. Holy shit. Now, <laughs> I don't know how long ago this was, but if this took place now. Uh, this was in like 2014. Really? It was that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Jesus Christ. Okay. I'm all for people like, hey, lay it in there. Like, as long as you don't kill me, lay it in there. Like, we're going to have a good match. You know, I don't mind skin wiggling a little bit. But damn, beat the fuck out of somebody. Like, I mean, like, yeah, all right. go ahead. You know, which I'm, yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not opposed because I mean, I can't, I don't want to sound like a hypocrite because I work stiff sometimes. You know what I mean? I work stiff most of the time. But, I was always taught there, there, to me. There's five levels of stiffness. <laughs> there's five levels of stiffness. There's light. There's tight. There's snug. They're stiff, and they're yo lighten the fuck up. That's what the five are to me. Uh, but damn, but if for her to say, yeah, I want to do this. Obviously, it's one of those cases where maybe Oscar was smart enough to work the boys and work the crowd to, you know, maybe that gives her a little bit of a mystique. You see what I'm saying? Like maybe that was one of the reasons why WWE was like. Hey, this girl's tough as hell. Maybe we need to bring her in. So maybe it was a benefit to her. You see what I'm saying? Right. It's, it's possible. I didn't know if you had a comment. I was waiting for something. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it, it's one of those instances where, like, she asked for it. Right. Uh, but damn. Right. Did you really have to? To do it, <laughs> you had to go. It, it had to be like that, like ugh, you know. But you, it's, it was. It's like you set up your own ass whooping, like yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, okay, that 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 was just insane. But yeah, for you know, I wonder if I wonder if uh, Suzuki got any heat over it. I mean, uh, I, you know, I don't think he did. Uh, and I mean, I could be wrong. But I, I just don't. I don't think he did. Uh, I think that uh, you know. I mean, it's Japan, so yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, J J like we said before, Japan has their own quirks and their own traditions and their own. You know, I mean, they pretty much. You know, strong style is pretty much their thing. So they're automatically right. going to want to hit harder, strike faster. You know. Um, you know, which in, in Japan, it's considered more sport than it is entertainment anyway. Um, you know, oh, yeah. And, you know, which which in the same within Canada and Mexico as well. And even in and even in Europe, you know, um, and in America here, too, there are promotions in America who are very, very strict when it comes to, you know, hitting people very hard in safe places, as to quote William Regal. Um, but damn, right. <laughs> damn, like. You, you had to do that? Okay. Yeah, I hope you impress somebody with your ability to take an ass whooping. So, okay. I mean, uh, uh, one. clearly she did because she got a job with the uh, WWE. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> All right. If we want to uh, be real about it. All right. right. So, uh, next up, we're going to go 
is an incident that goes all the way back to the 1980s. All right. Okay. This is when the company cheated Wendy Richter. Okay. All right. So Wendy Richter might not be well remembered as, as well remembered as the likes of um, Hulk Hogan or the fabulous Moolah per se. Um, but in the 80s, she was one of the top female wrestlers in the business. And as the women's champion, she was practically assured a good pay increase during contract renewal negotiations. Right. Right? Right. That was until she was booked to wrestle against a mysterious newcomer known only as the Spider Lady <clears throat> that she had never met or heard of before. Mm-hmm. Okay? Okay. Uh, so even the announcers were confused when the Spider Lady lady finally arrived. It was clearly the fabulous Moolah just wearing a mask. Despite this odd scenario, Wendy Richter was told she would win the match and not to worry. Uh, but to her surprise, Moolah rolled her up into a pin and was immediately declared the winner and new champion, despite Wendy kicking out and trying to continue the match. Realizing what had just happened, Wendy tried to keep the show going by taking the belt and refusing to hand it over. However, she did not get her new contract. In fact, she never wrestled for the WWE again, only appearing decades later to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, All right. The, the so this would be uh this would be the Montreal screw job before the Montreal, Montreal screw job. Right. You know, um, and that's when the fabulous Mueller had the stranglehold on the uh on the women's division. Um you know, and we've heard a lot. I mean, you've heard the stories of the whole WrestleMania thing of the of the fabulous Moolah. Um, did you ever see that episode of her on Dark Side of Wrestling where they talked about, you know, her accusations and everything like that? Uh, I've heard a lot and seen a lot um, about Moolah. I don't know what is or isn't real uh, at this point. Right. I mean, because you hear from you hear from the you know the the, the victims. You know, and I use that term in quotations, uh, you know, and then you hear from the people that really knew her the best. And like, and we've talked to people like we talked to Bambi and we talked to uh, Nigel Sheridan about it, you know, and, you know, they believe that Moolah was innocent and all this. Um, right. I don't know anybody personally or met anybody who has had an incident like this. Um, but if we're talking about just this specific incident, it's pretty shitty of them to do to Wendy Richter. You know, if, if if you tell her one thing and then you swerve at the very end, you know, like, you know, the, the whole the, the thing about a double cross is. I think Jim Cornette said it again. I'm going to keep on referring to Jim Cornette because he even though I don't, you know, agree with a lot of shit that he says, most of the shit about wrestling that he says is actually pretty accurate. A, right. A double cross is when you try to get the result you want without any of the participants' knowledge, but at the same time, don't let anybody else in the audience know anything is off kilter, right? That was That's kind of like what happened here, it, which is the complete opposite of what happened in Montreal, where everyone knew the fix was in except the one guy that got fucked, right? Um, but... I mean, yeah, I mean, it is a, it is a shit. It'd be one thing if you told, it'd be one thing if 
Mula was the champion, and you told Wendy Richter, yeah, Mula's going to go over tonight, and then Mula surprises you and gives you the win. Like, that's one thing, you know. Um, you know, But to have Mula, you might as well have had Mula just come out and be Mula, if that was the case. You know what I'm right. saying? Um, right. You know, when that was... I'm going to assume this was, you know, again, WWE. So was this McMahon? Was this was this Vince Sr. who made this call? Uh, I can't remember when, uh, when Vinnie Mac took over from. I I want to say this was this was Vinnie Mac, not Vince Sr. Let me let me look let me look something up real quick because I want to. I don't want to uh, purge myself of any unnecessary. Uh, let's see. Um, it says that, yeah, okay. See, he says he met, see, promoter, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, it says right here, it says throughout the 1970s, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it says during the 80s boom, the McMahons founded Titan Towers. Uh, going through. Yeah, it says during the late 1980s, McMahon shaped the WWF to a unique sports brand entertainment. Um, I think it says back in 19, I think it was 1983, I believe, was, was is when WWF split from the National Wrestling Alliance for the second time. Um, NWA was the governing body of all regional territories across the country, blah, 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 blah. Um, right. I would say that it was, hang on a minute, let's, let me look back up here. Uh... Yeah, nineteen. He started in nineteen sixty nine. Was when he started the commentary. He became a part of. I think it was yeah, it was nineteen eighties, nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five. One of those two days. But anyway, it doesn't give me it doesn't give me the rate. It just tells me dates. It, it, it just tells me years. It doesn't tell me direct dates or anything. Right. But, but even then, though, that's still a pretty crazy you know way to you know put the belt back on Mula after she. Unless it was some kind of deception angle, which you could have easily done in a different way than what you did it. But anyway. All right. So we're going to move on to the very next one. And this is one that I heard about. Um, I never I I never seen it. And I'm kind of glad I didn't see it. Uh, Shibata's life changing headbutt. Nobody wins with a headbutt. And unfortunately, Shibata had to learn that the hard way. Like, like what we talked about earlier, a lot of Japanese wrestlers, Shibata was a hard-hitting madman who proved who performed his signature headbutt multiple times without issue, despite the horrible sound the hit made sometimes. Um, all of that changed on the night that he faced Okada. Uh, in, in New Japan. As the two men hit each other with real blow after real blow after real blow, Shibata leaned back and cracked Okada with the headbutt, busting his own head open, unknowingly giving himself a cerebral hemorrhage in the process. After the minutes passed by, Shibata's brain bled as he slowly became paralyzed on his right side, losing the ability to walk. The match continued on as Shibata lost more motor functions and the and the ability to speak until Okada finally gave him one last huge hit and pinned him. Shibata, being ever the showman, attempted to walk out of the arena after his loss, but collapsed before he could make it out. After multiple, several emergency surgeries, 
and months of work just to save this man's life, Shibata eventually learned to walk and speak again. He later appeared at the New Japan Pro Wrestling show to announce he was somehow still alive. So, yeah, um, I've seen Shibata throw them headbutts. Oh, my God, they are so cringeworthy. I remember he did that. I think it was a uh, Toshihiro Ishii when him and these guys would just, like, literally, if you watch Toshihiro Ishii and Shibata, it looked like two guys taking turns effing each other up. That's what it looked like. Right. It's yeah. Did you ever? Did you ever? You mean obviously? I mean, because we're both big fans of pro wrestling. I apologize if we got the water running in the background. I don't know if you hear it or not. Um, you're fine. Did you? Uh, did you? You've seen Shibata perform. What did you think of uh, him yeah. as a performer? Uh, I mean, I've always liked Shibata. Right. But you, but you know, the headbutt when you see the headbutt. Oh yeah. You like, ugh, you know, which. I've learned to throw headbutts too. Um, I don't throw him with the intensity that he did. Um, yeah, but you didn't really start throwing headbutts until you seen Jack Gallagher throw them. Yeah, that's true. I did see him do a lot of that too. Yes. Um, um, of course, I you know try to do it in a different way from different angles, and because I, I want mine more of a desperation out of nowhere type surprise. Of Jack Gallagher, right. just bam, headbutt, you know, walk in the ring, hi, how you doing, headbutt, you know. Um, yeah. But Shibata's would be just hell. Like, I think the hardest headbutt I threw, and I threw it on an accident is what happened. Um, I was wrestling in a cage match, and I remember uh, Ryan Rembrandt was coming at me, and the, the idea was he was going to run at me like he was going to do a splash, and right as he gets to the middle of the ring and jumps, I jump at the same time we meet in the middle, and then I catch him with the headbutt. Well, that happened, and then as soon as that happened, I was like, you know, getting the crowd up and everything, grabbed him to put him into the, uh, to put him in the uh, double underhook DDT, and then I get clothesline out of it, whatever. But as I look down to pick him up, I'm noticing that he's got blood on his back, and I was like, oh shit, did he get cut? And then I realized I can't see out of my left eye. And I was like, oh, shit, I busted myself open giving this guy a headbutt. And my first right. immediate reaction was, holy shit, did I just Shabbata myself? That, you know, like immediately I'm going nuts right here. And then eventually I grabbed it and I was just like, OK, it's right there at the corner of my eye. Because it, it's, it's one of those hard way gigs. If somebody's scared to gig, you can like, all right, well, I'm going to catch you in the corner of the eye. It's going to, you know, give you a little mouse or you'll be fine. And then I ha- that happened to me and I was just like, Oh god! But then once I once I, I took the bump and my adrenaline kind of went down just a second, I was like, okay, I, I kind of quit bleeding. Okay, I think I'm okay. But even then, right, just that little bit that still scared the hell out of me. And it was it was literally maybe two four two to four months after the Shibata incident took place. So I was nervous about that. But right, yeah. Um, but also that goes back to the old saying that. You know, this isn't ballet. You know what we go, what we do. We we go out there and you know we do these. Which I guess it is ballet in a way, if you want to think about it. Because I mean, ballet dancers have to go through countless routines and routines and routines and have to get stuff down pat. And you know, I mean, hell, I can't walk on my toes. I mean, I mean, shit. Um, but yeah, it's one of those instances where it's like, you know, you train hard, you work hard, you know, you're, you're in a contact sport, no doubt. And sometimes real shit can happen. 
Um, and sometimes people do get overzealous with their shit. And I don't know if maybe if it was a situation of Shabbat being overzealous, or maybe it was a situation of like, maybe he went to the well once too often and finally it caught up with him. So, you know, that being said, I mean, which he's doing better now. I don't know if he'll, I don't know if he's gotten back in the ring since. I highly doubt it. Um, but matter of fact, I could look him up real quick. I don't, I don't want to take too much time. But I do want to at least see if he is. Uh, uh, there we go, Shabada. Okay, so you're not gonna do that. Okay. <laughs> I hate it when it does that. Like it says Shabada, I click on Shabada, and it's like, do you mean? That? I'm like, no, I don't mean that. You moron! I'm like, no, I don't. All right, here we go. Japanese wrestler. Uh, it's okay. It says it says injury. Blah, 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 hiatus. Okay, the last thing that was said here, it says is on June 9th, uh, 2019 at uh, Domination 6.1 at Osaka Joe Hall. It says Shibata returned to introduce the debuting Kenta on August 12th on the final night of the G1 Climax 29. Kenta joined the Bullet Club, resulting in Shibata rushing the ring to fight him ultimately ending with Shibata being beat down by Kenta and other members of the Bullet Club. This marks the first time Shibata had any physical altercations in the wrestling business since his injury. At Power Struggle, Shibata was once again ambushed by Kenta during the main event of between Jay White and Goto as he was attempting to aid his tag team partner. So I'm going to assume at that point that Shibata was doing something with Kenta to where it would either be him versus Kenta or him selecting someone to go up against Kenta. So, right. You know, which, I mean, either way, I mean, Shibata could get that one last, you know, glory, you know, whether it be, you know, him doing it or somebody who he brings in to do it. So, uh, but, you know, at least the man is still able to, you know, live and tell the story, you know, so, you know, that's that's right. Good. All right, so all right, we're down to the last one, and this one, down, this one, we're this down one. to the last one, and we're gonna wrap it up with one of the most, if not the most, shocking incident to ever take place at a wrestling show. Yeah, uh, and if, if if you haven't figured it out by now, ladies and gentlemen, um, we're we're talking about. Uh, the death of Owen Hart. Yeah. Um, so, uh, considering the dangers that wrestlers put themselves through day in and day out for years on end, it is actually quite surprising that so few performers die while doing it. However, as rare as it is, unfortunately, it does happen. Uh, and on the night of WWE's Over the Edge pay-per-view in 1999, Owen Hart paid the ultimate price for his career in a stunt that went horribly wrong. Um, so this stunt had been performed several times uh, before, um, not by Owen Hart, but uh, in WCW by uh, the wrestler known as Sting. Uh, yep. He would he would repel from the rafters uh, and unhook his harness and go on about meleeing a bunch of people. Right. Um, 
However, uh, so it didn't go that well for Owen Hart when he done it. Uh, at the time of the incident, Owen Hart was playing a character known as the Blue Blazer, a superhero type character that was played up for laughs in his appearances. Owen was supposed to be lowered from the rafters in a harness that would detach from him so he could face plant into the ring similar to similar to a stunt that he had pulled previously but something went wrong and owen was prematurely detached from his safety equipment while still nearly 80 feet in the air Hmm. um he fell chest first into the ropes which launched him into the ring in front of everyone in attendance He was quickly removed and rushed away by medical personnel as the show continued on without him as the audience looked on in shock and silence. It was announced shortly after to those watching that Owen had died from the fall. Um, The Hart family later sued the WWE for Owen's death, settled out of court. The pay-per-view has never been shown again. Uh, well, I'm sorry. It, it was never shown until 15 years later, uh, and now it has been heavily edited to remove the moments where Herr Owen fell. Um, yeah, this this one hurts me a little, you know. Um, so, um, most recently there was an episode of Dark Side of Wrestling, yeah, uh, that talks about this incident and. Um, how the the rigging equipment was changed at the last minute uh, to create a faster detach, and it um, ultimately wasn't rigged properly by the rigging crew, and that that is what caused Owen Hart's death. Um, at the same time. Um, he uh, during during his fall uh, it is said that he while he was falling instead of screaming for his life he yelled at the referee that was standing in the ring hey watch out so even in the last moments of his life he knew that he wasn't going to make this he was looking out for somebody else. Yeah. That right there tells me all I need to know about the man, Owen Hart. Yeah. He was known as being, he was he's probably one of the most liked from every person, every wrestler who knew him, that he was probably one of the most liked her people that in the locker room of all, you know, um, out of every heartbreak, he was the one that always liked to pull the pranks. He was the one that always you know, had the smile on his face and different things like that. Um, you know, I, 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 I talk about this a little bit with a smile, not even meaning to, but you know, out of all of, out of, out of my five favorite wrestlers of all time, and I tell you this all the time, out of my favorite, I always say that all my favorite wrestlers are dead. Um, Owen being one of them, Owen Hart, Brian Pillman, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, the only one that I still, the only the only wrestler that's, that that I loved as a kid growing up and that's still alive is Rey Mysterio. 
Um, so this one, it, it hurt me a lot um, from the standpoint. And I didn't right. appreciate it. I didn't appreciate Owen until much later. Like when you're when you're young, you know, you, you, you know, you, oh, you, you disgusting, dirty heel, you know, like, you know, but, but the, I mean, as you get older and you start watching the matches and you start appreciating work, um, you know, it, it, it's one of them things. It, it hurts me from the standpoint where it was like, it was such an unnecessary thing. Like, I understand you was doing the blue blazer deal and everything and you wanted it to be somewhat, cause Shawn Michaels did the whole scat, uh, Repelling from the rafters at WrestleMania 12. Sting did his thing in WCW. So you would think this is pretty safe enough. Um, right. And, but again, it's it, it's it's one of them instances where... And then the, the, the big debate where people are like, well, should the show have continued? And it's a horrible thing, but what do you do? You know? Because um, at the time, you probably didn't know what was going on. Um like some people say that it was a callous move by the company to continue the show. Other people say that, you know, there was no right decision to be made in the midst of all the chaos. Um, you know, you would think, you know, someone dying would be an okay reason to stop the show. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, Vince was in, Vince was basically between a rock and a hard place. And I don't think Vince even knew what to do at that point, you know? Um, as far as like, and again, I remember the fall, I remember when the fall happened, um, and they came out the very next night when they did Raw as Owen. Um, and I remember watching that event, you know, with Austin, you know, in the ring saluting, uh, Owen at the, you know, at the end of the broadcast. And I remember because it was, in, it was, it was in St. Louis that night. Uh, road, I think it was it was, it was a match. It was between Road Dog and uh, Godfather, and you know Godfather, uh, yeah. Godfather always says, you know, I can either whip your ass or you can get with these hoes or something like that. And then he was like, you know what? How about instead of this, because we everybody's feeling bad, why don't we just go and blaze the biggest biggest fatty we can or whatever? And that's when Road Dog said, yeah, let's go burn one and share some Owen stories. And then that's when they walked out. Um, right, you know, very similar as to the night that Eddie Guerrero passed away, and everybody had the uh, the tribute, you know, to Eddie afterwards. And then you hear a lot of the wrestlers. You hear Jeff. I think when you hear Jeff Jarrett, because what they do is they just sit in front of the camera and they tell their story and they tell their experiences and stuff. Um, Jeff Jarrett was the one that that gets you, the one that grips you, um, because him at the time, him and Jarrett were in conflict. Um, I believe it was in conflict with the with the Intercontinental Championship. I think I think no no, no I'm sorry. Uh, Jared ended up winning the Intercontinental title as a tribute to Owen. And right. And uh, you know, there's there's the whole there's the whole thing of you know, everyone knew that everybody knew Owen was the Blue Blazer. So and there's there's always the what if as to what would happen if Owen Hart hadn't have died. But. In a sense, in a sense, it's all hypothetical and all pipe dream. But since we're at this level of the conversation, let's just keep going down the rabbit hole. Um, the matches that had he had lived, I don't think the Blue Blazer thing would have kept on going because by then the Rouge was already up. He had already been seen without his mask on anyway. Um, he would have had matches probably probably worked with Jared for the or, 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 probably worked against Jared for the Intercontinental Title or whatever. 
would he have been put in the main event picture against Steve Austin or The Rock or Triple H? Could that have been a deal? Um, and there was other um, there was other questions uh, or other rumors that he was going to be the one to get the moniker of the game, the game Owen Hart, as opposed to Triple H um, in the game. Now I've heard rumors of that as well. I, I've heard that. I mean, just think of the. Okay, so this happened in '99. Yes. Right. Uh, coming into the company right around this same time, it you have Chris Jericho. Yep. You have Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, Kurt Angle. Oh, um, yeah. You know, just think of the matches that we could have had. Yeah. Had this tragic incident not happened, right? And right? Who, yeah, and who's to say that Owen, you know, and some there are some people of the more delusional variety, and I say that word very, 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 very heavily. The more delusional variety who believe that Owen Hart's death is one hundred percent contributed to Vince McMahon in retaliation of Bret Hart going to WCW. I I have heard I have heard that conspiracy theory um and I don't want to say it's true but it's plausible plausible yes but if that was the case think about this why would because think about this when Bret Hart left after the Montreal Screwjob in 1997 Owen didn't leave Owen stayed loyal to the company why would you kill why would you intentionally murder Owen Hart even though he showed you loyalty, where he could have easily left and went with his brother to WCW. Oh no, I agree. You know what that's I mean? Why I said it, that's why I said I'm not saying it's true. Right. I'm saying it's plausible. Right. Uh, you know, it, it it could be, but I don't I don't see that. Uh, yeah. Why would you uh, kill somebody who is going to make you money? Exactly, and he definitely, but especially with him doing the Blackheart character, um, you know, he could have easily went back to that. Um, you know, him him being a part of the Nation of Domination and all the knowledge that he passed down to guys like The Rock and Mark Henry, you know, and for him to, you know, I think, I mean, since I mean this since this is the last one, let's go ahead and let's uh, go back and forth here if you want to. What are some of your favorite Owen Hart matches? Do you have a specific Owen Hart match that you? Uh, that you enjoy more than any of the other ones? Um, anytime that him and The Rock would hook up, uh, they just, there was some chemistry there that was amazing. Yes. Um, the the Bret Hart Owen Hart brother versus brother match at WrestleMania 10. Love, that's one of my would, favorite feuds of the history of the business. Yes. Um, I just, Owen was, uh, Unpopular opinion. Owen was the better wrestler uh, and entertainer between him and Brett. I think it was definitely um, the yeah yeah I I, th- I believe that so yes definitely a better uh, entertainer I think because he had, I, he had I, that yeah go ahead I'm sorry yeah but I think I think he was the better wrestler too right uh, when when it comes down to it uh, both uh, amateur and pro yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, that's just my opinion. 
and it, it seems to be an unpopular opinion amongst the the masses but uh you know me i'm always known for going against the grain right which um, I, which, which, which uh, hell i mean owen was one of my favorites so oh um, yeah you know so w- me and you were in the same boat there um not to say that i didn't think brett was a great talent but i don't no, no, no. i take brett, nothing away from brett i mean but brett got his world multi-time right. world champion and i think had owen not died it, he would have become a world champion as well I, I that, that i do believe i do believe that would have been a case because if it because it was right after the purchase that would would owen have been around up until maybe i think if owen was stuck around to maybe possibly 2004 2005 maybe he would have been able because i could have easily seen owen helping out with guys down at ovw or deep south or developmental territory or something like that owen given his you know giving advice to the guys in NXT and things like that. And him and Triple H had a good relationship, so there could have been something there, too. Right. Uh, For me... But but then you hear all the rumors, uh, and and I I would say it's probably less rumor at this point, but the fact that he just wanted to earn enough money that he didn't have to wrestle anymore, and he could, you know, spend time with his family. Because right. that's what was most important to him yes. was Martha uh, and his two kids. Right. Um, one of my favorite matches with him, it, it involved him and Brett. Because um, if, if I'm not mistaken, like you, when we were just youngins in this industry, uh, we started hanging out outside of the business. We, you would come over to my house when we lived in that small house out in Flintstone. And I showed you my uh, VHS tapes of wrestling and then you were like, I got you beat, but I like this collection because I like the content. Uh, and then you invited me over to your house, and I've seen all your wrestling collection. I'm like, damn, I got to step my game up. But anyway, I got the WWE. <laughs> I can watch all of them. I, I still have all of those uh, wrestling uh, VHS, except for they're not on VHS anymore. I uh, looked into a guy who converted them to DVD for me, and I still have them. Right. But I remember we watched, uh, we were going through a lot of them. And the one match that we watched um, was, uh, I think, the 1994 SummerSlam when Brett and uh, Owen had the cage match. That was the year that it was Undertaker versus Undertaker, uh, Lex Luger versus Tatanka, which was an okay match. Uh, Razor Ramon versus Diesel, the night it was with Walter Payton, got involved with the match. Um, but the match, and because I, I, so I told you it was one of my favorites, because it was, it was, it was kind of like a family breaking down. It was Owen and it was Brett. Jim, Jim Nightheart was involved with it. Um, David, Davy Boy was involved with it. Stu Hart was sitting in the front row. You know, it was more of a, it, it was like a family affair at that point, and it, it told a great story. And I think that Owen never got enough credit for being a good storyteller. Oh, especially, no. especially with the way because I mean he was Owen was the little brother Owen was the one that was always in Brett's shadow you know and what really because think about it Bret Hart wins the Royal Rumble next thing you know Owen wins the Royal Rumble Bret Hart wins the Intercontinental title Owen Hart wins the Intercontinental you know um, but Bret always got the most you know always got over the most you know being the big brother and you know that's a lot of pressure to follow in the footsteps of somebody which brett in and of itself wasn't really a mainstay yet because he was 
with Jim the Anvil Nightheart during in the Heart Foundation. And it right. wasn't until Brett, you know, left the tag team, started working with guys like Roddy Piper and Ted DiBiase and Razor Ramon and Mr. Perfect that he got better in the ring. Uh, Owen, in the time in the Attitude Era, you know, working with guys like Triple H, like, you know, the Outlaws, working with guys like Mick Foley, working with the guys like The Rock, you know, and helping these young guys get over by getting himself over as well. Um, and if I remember, I think it was the 19, I think it was 1996, um, it was the in your house right before WrestleMania 12, because um, they did the whole deal with Shawn Michaels coming back at that at that Royal Rumble, and Owen Hart was the one bragging that he is he's the one that put Brett, uh, put Shawn Michaels on the shelf and blah 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 blah. He's got the best martial arts kick in the business, which was just an enziguri, but back then an enziguri looked stiff as shit compared to nowadays. Right, um, but. But yeah, I think that it was, again, just an incredible, uh, incredible feud that they had. Again, this was Shawn Michaels in 1996, so it was pre. Right. With this, um, you know, uh, I don't think it was this one because this was uh, Shawn Michaels versus uh, British Bulldog. Yeah, that was Beware a Dog. That was the one after WrestleMania. The one before WrestleMania was him and was him and Owen Hart. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was him versus Owen Hart at the same. That was the same night that Brett faced Diesel in a steel cage match, and that led to Diesel. That led to the Undertaker costing Diesel the match, which led to Diesel versus Undertaker at WrestleMania 12. Uh, so that looks like it would have been, uh, maybe in your house six. Look that up again. Yes, Bret Hart in the um, uh, cage. So yeah, that that card consisted of Jake Roberts defeating Tatanka, Razor yeah. Ramon defeating the One Two Three Kid, Triple H defeating Duke Dumpster Drozzy, uh, Yokozuna defeating the British Bulldog. Shawn Michaels defeated Owen Hart to determine the number one contender for the WWF world title. Uh, and then Bret Hart defeating Diesel by escaping the cage. Um, and then you had uh, a few dark matches consisting of Ahmed Johnson defeating Dr. Isaac Yankum, the Godwins defeating the Body Donnas, and the Undertaker defeating Gold Dust. It sounds like that sounds like a universe match from WWE2K or something. Yeah, it says they were uh, they were dark matches. So right, that's interesting that the Undertaker was on a dark match. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. He hey, he was in another dark match the, the, at the very next one in your house six or in your house seven. Uh, yeah. That was April twenty. That was April twenty eighth of nineteen ninety six. Uh, right after. Was this after WrestleMania? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was right yeah, after. That was the one after WrestleMania. Okay, because the one, yeah, because that was Mark Merrill defeated the one, two, three kid on the free for all. Owen and the British Bulldog defeated Ahmed Johnson and Jake the Snake Roberts in a tag team match. Ultimate Warrior defeated Goldust. 
by Countout. Vader defeated Razor Ramon. The Bonnie Donnas defeated the Godwins. Shawn Michaels with Jose Lothario defeated Diesel in a no holds barred match. And then the, the three dark matches were Savio Vega versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H versus Mark Marrow, and The Undertaker versus Mankind. Good he, Lord. And here, think we, back, think, look back at that. Those dark matches, you have one, two, three, four uh, world champions. Yep. I just, yeah. But, yeah. And at the time, well, at the time, also, you know, I think at that point, I don't. Yeah, the Undertaker was already a, was already a, 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 a world a WWE champion at that point. He oh was, yeah. Didn't he defeat Hogan for the championship in like ninety three or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Then then the next one in your house eight beware was beware of dog. Um, right. Was that the one that they did where the uh, power went out? Uh, yes, I think so. Yeah, uh, yeah, because that was the yeah they because because they did a lot of them. Excuse me, the very next taping because Savio Vega and Steve Austin did that car- that Caribbean strap match. Right, it lasted twenty one minutes twenty seven seconds. Holy shit. Uh, and then Vader defeated Yokozuna, and then Goldust defeated the Undertaker in a casket match. Right, because that was the that was that when, was when they he did the gold casket. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, didn't they catch that on fire? No, 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 that wasn't that one. This was the one where um, Undertaker went to open the casket, and uh, Mick Foley was in there. That's when Mick fucking Mick Foley caused like brought the brought Undertaker in the casket with him and Goldust shut shut the casket. That was kind of the the, the weird bizarre relationship that Goldust and Mankind had for a while, where he was calling Goldust mommy. You know, yeah, it, 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 this was night <laughs> again. This is 1996 WWF, so anything was going on at that point. But anyway, um. But yeah, that has been the list. Um, out of all the ones that we've talked about, which is the one? I guess that one that the one that's most interesting to you. The one because obviously the Owen Hart one hit. We talked about. I think we talked about the Owen Hart one more than we talked about any of the other ones. Um, uh, right. Some, the. Um, I mean, they were all pretty interesting. The uh, the uh, Oscar and uh, Suzuki one though kind of stands out because she asked for this this beating right. and got it and everybody else is like man what the hell and she's like oh I loved it I, I just wanted to prove <laughs> that I could you know go and I'm like oh wow right and that one there you know um, the one with Shawn Michaels getting the battery thrown at him which could have catastrophically could have potentially catastrophically altered the whole timeline of the WWF because you got to remember also this was going into 1990 again this was 1998 WCW was still kicking WWF's ass in the ratings oh yeah we were dead in the middle of the Monday Night War at that point the NWO was running rough shot still to this day so many you know people but back then 1998 wrestling was more popular way more popular which i guess the 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 popularity of pro wrestling it's not as popular as it was in the 90s but i think that independent wrestling has become more popular 
today than mainstream wrestling has. Um, but even then, a lot of the like a lot of the, the ratings and people still use the rating system, you know, today. Um, but back then they were hitting like sevens and you know, eights. And I think Rob one time, I think it was the Mick Foley rock. This is your life segment. They pulled like a 9.4 or 9.5 or something like that. Right. Um, but nowadays people were, I find it so weird that when CM Punk was the WWE champion, the raw ratings were in the fours, like 4.3 point to like 4.7. Right. Now, you're lucky if a Monday Night Raw gets a 2.5 rating now. You know, it's just, it's, it's so, it's so different because there's so much stuff on in terms of wrestling now. You know, everything from, from WWE to AEW, you know, you know, cause it, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like department stores in a sense. Go with me on this analogy for a second. You have, okay. you have Walmart obviously but you also have target sears jc penny belk you know macy's you know all these other different stores they all take a percentage of the market share and walmart obviously because they also sell groceries as well but there's also food city costco sam's club all these other every single one of them take a percentage that's how I look at wrestling from a business standpoint in terms of market share, because WWE, regardless of what you may think of the product currently or whatever, they're still the top dog in the United States. You know, I, 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 maybe maybe globally, I know New Japan is right up there in terms of, you know, their longevity since 1972 and all that. But there's I guarantee you there's not I mean. Aside from the hardcore, like devoted wrestling fans in America who love New Japan, aside from them, there's not a whole lot of casual viewing of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, but nevertheless, you have WWE, but then you have Impact, AEW, Ring of Honor, Evolve, all these other big independent shows that are popping up. Mix that in with a lot of the stuff from Canada, a lot of stuff from Mexico, a lot of stuff in Japan, a lot of stuff from even Australia and the UK, where everyone tries to take a percentage. And as long as as long as WWE is still on top, I mean, you're going to be making some money. But I don't really see them. I don't really see them getting up there that high anymore. And the way we watch television these days with more streaming services like it's different which i'm happy that there's some kind of competition between wwe and aew because i feel like that's what has been missing from wrestling for so many years oh most definitely because once wcw went to the wayside and people don't people don't understand this when wcw went under ecw went under as well so there was nobody competing with vince Nobody competing with WWE. And even when TNA was getting their little bit of shine, and even when TNA, at, I think in what was it, 2008, 2009, tried to go head-to-head against WWE, yeah, that shit didn't work either, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, but I, I think the wrestling business is going to be okay, you know? But anyway, after going on that 
crazy tangent. I didn't think I was going to go on. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode. Um, hopefully you guys learned a little something and hopefully you had a couple of laughs along the way as well. Um, I'm going to be back in the ring this upcoming Saturday at Revive Pro Wrestling. Uh, uh, me and Aiden are going to go up and we're going to defend the movement's honor. We're going to kick the Gotch Brothers ass and we'll bring those uh, Revive Pro Tag Team Championships back to the forefront. Um, yeah, I'll give them a couple of extra hits in the face for you, brother. <laughs> yes, please do. I sure will. Um, that being said, uh, Bubba, let's go ahead and let's go to the intro. All right. With that being said, please do not leave without leaving a like, comment, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Follow us on all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Make sure you check us out on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe and hit that bell to get notified of our latest videos. I am Chip Hazard. I am Talon Williams. And this is Movement Radio.